Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in New York. On today's show, we're discussing psychotherapy. What exactly is it? And how is it different from other ways of dealing with mental and emotional suffering? To tackle these questions, we're speaking to Joe Frasca, author of the book, Delving Deeper, Understanding Diverse Approaches While Exploring Psychotherapy, published in 2016 by Joe Frasca Publishing. Joe Frasca is a psychotherapist in private practice in Sydney, Australia, combining transactional analysis and the relational model in her work informed by psychoanalytic theory and thinking. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, you. So before we get into the book, tell me about yourself. What's your professional background and where do you live in practice? I live in Sydney in New South Wales, Australia, um, and I practice in Sydney as well. I have I have two practices. Um, I have a practice, a home practice actually, and I have a practice in the CBD in Sydney to keep me honest and get me out of bed in the mornings. Um, I, I work longer term with people, obviously, which will be reflected in the book, and um, and I spend time writing, and I have begun blogging as well. So because we're going to be talking about psychotherapy and all the different kinds of psychotherapies as well as non-psychotherapies that are available, what kind of psychotherapy do you offer, and how is it different from other approaches that are out there? For me, that's a big question. That's the premise of the book in many ways. For me, psychotherapy is psychotherapy, and that psychotherapy is a particular way of working which was developed, obviously, by Freud and his his crew, and that it is it, – psychotherapy describes longer-term work with people where you work with the transference and the counter-transference as opposed to working shorter or using interventions. So what would you call the latter? 
The latter? Meaning these shorter term interventions, would you not call them psychotherapy? No, no, no. That's a very good question. No, I, w- I wouldn't call them psychotherapy. I would perhaps call them, um, I would call them counselling or um, psychology intervention with CBT. CBT is you know, probably the most common and well-known approach that people use uh, that is out there on the airways for clients. If someone is if someone is looking for treatment, they are usually going to get CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy of some of some description. Um, and I wouldn't class that as psychotherapy. I know I know um, education, and I mentioned this in my book as well. I know education in the United States is a little different. That they teach uh, psychotherapy as an intervention. Uh, in Europe, it's quite different. Psychotherapy is is longer term. It's very specifically a standalone modality where people go for longer term treatment when the, when other when other approaches haven't worked. So you know, we've already walked right into one of the things that interested me most about your book and this topic because here in the United States, where where I practice. If things are very different, um, I think a lot of people would consider CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the many short-term focused approaches that you mentioned before, would consider that to be not only a form of psychotherapy, but depending on who you ask, maybe from the insurance company's point of view, the predominant um, and most empirically supported form of psychotherapy available to people and so I'm wondering how you feel about that and how that differs from the kind of training that you received in Australia. Yes, that's a, that's a, a very complex question, which I, I, I think I'm in the process of still, still pulling apart even after you know, spending several years writing a book and, um, <clears throat> and the research that I did. So, so I, I, I think that Something has happened at some point in time where the word psychotherapy has begun to be used in a different context to which it was in which it was developed in the early days uh, through through the work of Freud and Jung. So psychotherapy was a description for, as I said earlier, longer term work where you're looking at very particular things. You're you're working with the archaic part of the person's history, so very much around early family of origin work. You're working with the the, the transference and the counter-transference as opposed to, for example, what insurance companies want you to do. They actually don't want you to do the longer-term work. They don't want you to be looking at the archaic work. They really want you to be developing a strategy with the client to help them uh, put things in place that will fix whatever the problem is, and that's usually much shorter-term work. So I think what's happened over a long period of time has been an erosion of the meaning of what psychotherapy is. And what my attempt to do in this book is to bring back what the original meaning of psychotherapy was. And, I, and I'm talking quite a long long time ago now. And I, and I think if you had this conversation in, in Europe, it would be quite different. In Europe, there is a delineation around the difference between psychotherapy being longer-term work and what shorter-term work is. So just to be clear, were you trained in Australia? Yes, I was. I was trained in Australia by a European group. And, and what did your training consist of? 
Okay, so the training is a is a is a psychotherapy training. As I said, my, my training is in transactional analysis, and and the transactional analysis training is a, is an international training. So it's the same in America as it is in Europe, as it is in um, South America, as it is in New Zealand. Uh, there's a standard training program. It's four years. The requirement is that you have a prior degree in a related area. My prior degree in the related area is in social science. Um, and so you do four years training around specific psychotherapy theory. And then you go into an exam process. So, you know, basically it's a, it's a master's of, of psychotherapy. And that's the way they train for psychotherapy in, in, in Europe as well. And I know it's quite different in, in, in America. So let's get into the book because I, I, one of the things, the things that I recall from the book, and tell me if I'm, if I'm getting this wrong, is that you talk about receiving training in CBT before later on receiving training in psychotherapy. Is that correct? Well, yes, yes. In a, in a prior degree, usually most of the university degrees uh, in Australia are CBT bent mostly. So most people don't jump straight into a psychotherapy training. They have to have some sort of um, prior qualification, as I said, in Europe, for example. Not so much now, but many years ago, you couldn't get into a psychotherapy training until you were advanced in your ages, in, in your age, I mean. Um, so it was more around looking yeah. at experienced practitioners going into a psychotherapy training. If we're looking at the traditional, which is what I'm, 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 I'm trying to make a line in the sand around. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, and, and I think you you illustrate this in some of your stories in the book, I'm wondering what it was like for you to actually treat patients when you had undergone or were undergoing training in CBT, but before having ever taken any training in psychotherapy. And then I'm also wondering what it was like once you then entered training into psychotherapy, how was that different? How did that change the way that you worked with patients? Firstly, it was a relief um, because in the in the CBT work that I did, I was often very frustrated. Uh, it was exhausting work. I, I, I think working with strategy is quite exhausting. The client's always looking for you to find a resolution for them. Uh, yes, yes, you are helping them find a way, but it's very much around trying to put things in place for them to lead their life in a better way. So in the early stages of my work, I was quite frustrated. Uh, fortunately, I was optimistic and, and, and excited, so I hadn't got to a, a place of burnout, but that did happen. I was also fortunate in that my 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 CBT training was very close uh, linked with my psychotherapy training. So I bumped into psychotherapy literally uh, very close to the finish of my of my CBT training. And so as I slowly moved into that new paradigm, looking more deeply at the client, allowing them a lot more time to be processing emotion, um, not trying to find a strategy for them, trying to unfold some material around why they were, where they were, was almost a relief. I could feel the, I could feel the ease of 
how much more powerful for me that work was. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is really about working usually in a time-limited frame on specific and clearly defined goals and using empowering the client with certain strategies to um, to achieve those goals. But it, as I understand it, in CBT, the goals are usually pretty behaviorally defined. From your description, psychotherapy is a totally different process, and the work you do is much more long-term, much more in-depth. And so I'm, I'm wondering, at what point did you decide that this distinction was important enough to write a book about? Yes, that, that, that distinction actually was driven by the public. Um, I felt that I was very clear in my own mind around the difference between the two approaches. Every time I had a conversation with people, it didn't matter whether it was at a dinner party, at a bus stop, wherever it was, and the conversation arrived at what do you do for work and I would say psychotherapy, people would say, ah, what's the difference between psychotherapy and psychiatry? What's the difference between psychotherapy and psychology or counselling or coaching? And, and this this didn't happen once or twice. It, it happened repeatedly. And I started to wonder why those lines in the sand were not clear. And I think that that was the beginning of me understanding that we as a profession perhaps don't clarify those lines. And, and, and those questions still happen now. Even while I was writing the book, there were occasions where I thought, oh, is this is this too difficult? Is this too complex? How do I pull this apart? Um, I was still being asked that same question and I thought somewhere I have to find the words to explain this difference for people because even, even the difference between psychiatry and psychology, even the difference between psychology and counselling, people don't understand that. So I did try to pick up a fairly large lump of the profession and tease it out to some degree. And why do you think it's important for people to understand those distinctions? Ah, yes. Yes, that's, very, that's a very, very important question. I, I find that people don't come into psychotherapy because they want to. I find that people come in because they've tried, they've tried CBT, they've tried medication, they've been reading a lot of self-help, and for a lot of people that works really well and they get a result. Fantastic. But for other people where there's more long-standing, I'm going to say archaic damage, they haven't got a result. And a couple of things happen. One is that they feel like they are really unwell. They feel like a failure. They feel like they are the problem because they've not recovered from the esteemed approaches that are used through the CBT um, style of working. And so they come feeling more ill than ever. And it's, it becomes important for us, I feel, to consider that the, that the client 
is not always going to respond to short-term work. And I think in Australia, and I know in America as well, particularly because of the way the insurance works in America, um, the, the, the drive is to get the client to recover in, a, in the shortest possible way, in the shortest possible term that they can. And a lot of what we're dealing with now and seeing we're not able to do that. That's like asking for a magic pill, really. And so we need to bring on board a consideration for clients that there is this longer-term approach that they might need if CBT or medication doesn't work so the clients themselves don't feel mad, bad, and crazy. So, so I wonder if then by implication you think that our our clients would – feel better and maybe have more success if they knew from the outset what the different approaches are, what each of them differs, uh, what, what each of them offers that's different from the other one, um, and if that would help them to have more accurate expectations when they enter into some kind of psychotherapy or some other approach. Yes, that's that's exactly what the purpose of the book is. The, the book is written for for the general public. Obviously, the book isn't written from you would know for, for for academia. It's written for the general public in an attempt to get them to be able to have that opportunity to say, oh, okay, so if I do medication, I can do medication, but I can try something else. I can try CBT. Well, if I don't try CBT, then there is actually something else. Yes, it is absolutely about the public being informed. And I think that it becomes incumbent on the profession to try to draw more clearly the lines in the sand. I had a client come who thought her psychiatrist was a counsellor. Now, while there's some work in that area, that's certainly not her psychiatrist's approach, basic approach. And so when I eventually spoke to him, he said, I don't know where that that idea has come from that she thinks that I'm a counsellor. So so there it is in a, in, a, in a nice tight little nutshell, that confusion. Yeah, I mean, it's, people can get lost in the mental health system and what you're describing sounds like an example of someone being in one form of treatment while perhaps thinking that she's in a different form of treatment or or thinking it's supposed to be doing something different from what it really purports to do. Um, I want you to tell us about the book because you say it's written for the lay public, but it, it also has a particular uh, style, I suppose you'd say. It, it's It's really a collection of stories. Tell us how that works and why you chose... Um, why you chose to make it a, a collection of, of anecdotes from your own work? Yes, that was a that was a, a, a difficult decision, and I think maybe for ten years I, I paced the floor wondering what the right approach was, how to actually reach the public. I thought if I had tried to write about what long-term work is, what short-term work is, I thought that the book would be quite dry. Um, I started writing client stories as a bit of an experiment and then I noticed that one story flowed into another story and flowed into another story and I, and I shared some of them with, with people and with, with colleagues and eventually over workshopping this with people, I decided that the best thing to do for the public was to give very specific stories so they could see the difference. So you might notice in the beginning of the book I talk quite a, a bit about 
some of the CBT work that I did and mm-hmm. I kind of dabble in my frustration around, you know, not being able to work something out and, 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 and then I move more into the longer-term work where I'm working and explaining in the book the counter-transference, the archaic work that the clients are doing. So the, so the, so the book evolved slowly over a period of time thinking mostly about how was I going to get the the clients or the the public to read the book and understand the difference between the two and it's a really interesting you haven't mentioned this yet but I will throw it in there is a dog in the book mm. and so I rightly or wrongly which is very controversial in in, in the fields that I work in, in in psychotherapy brought a dog in and one of the really good things about the dog is it liberated the stories. It gave me an opportunity to write easily relatable stories, so relatable stories to the public. So I noticed the stories that have the dog's dog in it, people tend to relate to more easily. I'm not going to say everyone does because not everyone everyone likes dogs and animals, but um, but for a majority of people that allow a sort of liberation of, of, of the story because of sibling rivalry and, and, and the issues that came as a result of bringing the dog into the room. For our listeners who haven't had a chance to pick up the book yet, you're talking about Sadie, your dog, right? Yes, that's right, yes. So what, tell us a little more about what you think Sadie's presence um, does or how, how it influences the process. Uh, well, it's, in, it's it's interesting in that Sadie, for some clients who were unable to articulate or express, when Sadie came into the room, they were able to use the dog as an opportunity to say things that perhaps they would not have been able to say before. Or she actually provoked material that people had not been able to express before, particularly things around, as I said, sibling rivalry and grief. Grief was a really big thing that Sadie was able to provoke for people. So it actually brought some of the work into the room. Now, I say in the book often, and I I still ask this question, would that material have still found its way into the room with or without Sadie? I'm sure in the longer term it would have. But what it gave me in terms of writing the book is an opportunity to write it in a more a pedestrian user-friendly manner. Why do you think it is that Sadie brings out issues related to sibling rivalry? Well, because she appears to the client to be my child and, of course, for some client adaptations, I'll, I'll use borderline in particular, then the, ch- the, the client the client sees the dog as my child and there's immediately some rivalry or let's say jealousy there around the dog being in my life in a particular way and then not. And so that brings a lot of very, very rich, difficult material into the room. You mentioned that you focus, among other things, on bringing up and discussing archaic material. What do you mean by that? Yes, good question. Archaic material for, for, for me would mean material that belongs to early childhood. And it's usually very difficult material to find. Some of it is, I explain in the book, pre-verbal, so very difficult to find words. It happens before the child has language. And often a client will say, 
look, I don't know, it just feels like this. It just feels. And so we'll work with that around the feeling because, in fact, there could possibly be no words for that. And so archaic means something randomly pre-seven, pre-seven years old. Um, so very, very early. It can be. It can be later than that but very, very early material where the child is actually making a decision about the world based on what's happening in their home. And, and when you say that you, you access this material, how exactly does that work? I mean, how, how do you bring forth something that occurred during a time when the patient probably didn't even have the language to encode it? Mm, that's, a very, that's a very good question. That material finds its way into the room slowly. It depends at what stage the client is with their distress, where they arrive, and we start to look at patterns. I think patterns are the most important thing. So when people repeat doing things, we look at how that might have been in the family when they were younger or how a family member might have been, how a parent's behaviour might have been toward them, how they felt about their parents, any particular things that they did remember. Um, that's usually the starting place. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because I know that many of our listeners will be hearing your description of this this kind of work and thinking to themselves, you know, that sounds really great, but it sounds like it takes a lot of time and it would take a lot of money. And with there being so many other options out there for approaches that could help a person return to normal functioning or develop strategies for coping with their symptoms. And I'm not just talking about CBT. We have things like mindfulness and DBT and somatic experiencing. One might wonder, well, why should I why should I spend this money and time to undergo this much longer process that's, that's, that's in order to uncover this archaic material when I can do just as well with shorter-term work? What, what is unique? What does, what does this longer-term work offer, you think, that nothing else can? Well, I think that the, I think that the, 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 the point in there is that it isn't that something else can offer it. I think that that's the key in this. It, this is I, I find that people come into psychotherapy after they have done many of the things that you have mentioned and I've mentioned, and they haven't got a result. Psychotherapy is like the product that people buy when someone has said, "I've tried everything else and nothing else works." Um, so it isn't something. It isn't a joyride. People don't come in going, "Yoo-hoo! I want to do some psychotherapy. I want to go into long-term work and rip my history apart, and you know, go back and drag up all the ugly things from from my childhood." That isn't what happens. It usually is people that are that have become desperate, that have not found a resolution, that have found a lot of things along their path very useful but not actually fixed the symptoms of the problem. So I don't, I, I think that most people, and I, and I mentioned this in the book, I, I see a lot of people that have seen many, many, many different practitioners, done many, many different approaches to try to get some sort of resolution and they haven't. And the only reason they come to psychotherapy is become because somebody has said, look, I know somebody that did this and it helped. Uh, that's usually the byline, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's not a not by choice. You know, let's 
I'd like to talk about a particular story because I think it illustrates what we're talking about so well. There's a story entitled, What is Phobia? And in it, you talk about working with a female patient who had seen a psychiatrist and a psychologist before eventually coming to you. And those treatments had not cured her of her phobia. It was a phobia of leaving the house, I believe. Can you tell can you tell us a little bit about this case and and what you learned from it? Yes, I, 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 yes, that's it. Was a it was a it was a very very important case. I, I think um, one of the things that she presented with was a sense of utter absolute inadequacy. And as I pulled that apart, I began to realise, I think it was the first time I really began to realise that when people are treated with a form of, um, I don't know, counselling, CBT, strategy, whatever, if it's not working, the client feels like they're the problem because what this client presented with is they tried this, they took me on a bus, they tried to get me to cross you know, she, she 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 literally pushed me through the door, and and you know went with me on the bus, and I was and I was terrified. They did everything, and so she felt like everything had been done to help her rid herself of her agoraphobia, and that she was actually a problem. I think that was where the awareness for me around there's something bigger going on. This is not actually about her inability to go outside. There is something much, much greater. And, of course, if we read a lot of the material from the more analytical field around agoraphobia in particular, it speaks to lack of attachment. And so once I started to work with her around the lack of attachment, we began to see a pattern in her family around unavailable parents and, of course, you know, the terrified child and the fear of literally everything. So, so the so the approach around CBT was never going to work for her. It was actually making her symptoms far worse. By the time she came to me, she couldn't really leave the house. We did a lot of sessions by phone. Her partner had to bring her in the car and sit out the front so that if she needed to leave, she needed to leave. It was a very it was a very complex and difficult case. But can you walk, can you walk us through a little bit? how it is, in, in terms of the way you conceptualize this case, how it is that something like attachment ends up leading to a, symptoms like agoraphobia and inability to leave the house. Well, to keep it as simple as possible, I, I believe that it happens as a result of the fear that the child develops very early on. So there is lack of attachment so there's lack of safety so there's lack of trust so there's lack of support so if you imagine that they become the foundations of that child's life so the child hasn't grown up with warmth and love and safety and trust so there's this already very corrupt foundation that they put their lives on so as their lives move forward and bad things happen that they don't have a, a place to defer to that is safe and solid. 
they only have a place of fear. And so the fear becomes greater and greater and greater that there won't be anybody there for them, that there isn't anybody there for them, that the world is very scary. It's a little bit, I use the analogy in the book, it's a little bit like building a house on, on, a, on a muddy foundation. The house is eventually going to start to crack and crumble. Well, it's very, it's, it's, it's a very similar outcome for people that do not have that solid attachment when they're born and there's not that real bond and one of the things that we have come to learn about her mother is that her mother and father did not want to be married they were very unhappy and this child was a product that kept them together and so she was for her most of her life she was rejected and ejected from their lives. So she never, ever had a sense of security. She never had a sense of love. And so that made her house very, very shaky. So anytime anything threatening came into her world, as I said, she had nothing solid to put her life on. So this makes me wonder something that I think a lot of therapists might struggle with. And it is, you know, it, it seems to me like doing this kind of work requires a certain kind of curiosity, not just in yourself, but really in the patient. And I'm wondering when, when you have a patient come into your office who sort of insists or really wants uh, a faster solution, who, who, who desperately wants to be able to start leaving the house right away and, and doesn't understand or doesn't really have an interest in this longer-term work, how do you cultivate that kind of curiosity in such a patient? Look, by the time, as I'm going to go back to what I, as I said before around, I don't usually have to do a lot around that because they've already done that themselves. I don't, I don't have to force, force that, 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 that approach for the person. One of the things I always do when somebody comes is I'm very clear about what psychotherapy is. I, I, I talk about, you know, that it is, it's a long approach. That it's an emotional roller coaster, that it is expensive because it takes so long. And I think that if someone can get that outside, I will refer them on. And often when I see people that I will refer them on, I'll say, okay, so it doesn't sound like this is a journey for you. And then we will find them somebody else to work with. The people that I work with are usually people that themselves say, I haven't been able to find a resolution. And so they're already in for the long haul. But, but I, I assume you must have moments, even with, with the patients who are signed up for the long journey, moments, oh. moments of impatience, either moments when they become impatient, or maybe you become yes. impatient. You don't know what's going on. It's not unfolding as you, as you would hope that it would. And how do you deal with those moments? Look, I think, I think if, if I had those moments, if I had those moments frequently, it would mean I'm not trained as a psychotherapist. I think you're touching on a really important point here because a part of the process is to know that the path is not clear. The theory is very clear. The, the, the way you work with the client is very clear and it is actually about being patient. So I think if I get impatient, it means that there's something going on for me, which obviously I, I take off to supervision. The client frequently gets to that that place. They're very frustrated. They're very and 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 it's a conversation around, you know, how they move forward. 
what, what they want. Have they had any change at this point? But people will only stay in a process like this if they're getting something out of it. They're not going to stay if, they, if they're not getting something out of it. So by the time frustrations start to come up around, I feel like I'm stuck, I feel like I'm at an impasse, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere, this is taking too long, we already have a fairly good basis for them to know that they've understood a lot of things, that they have had some change, though it might not be the amount of change that they want, that we're working toward. Um, there is enough for them to step on and say, well, actually, yes, I have got what I want. I do want to do this. It's just very frustrating. And then we work with that. Mm. I, I want to talk to you about the difference, as you see it, between psychotherapy in the United States and in Australia. And we, we've touched a little bit on on how insurance companies sort of dominate or, or have a heavy hand on the scale here in the United States. I'm wondering if you find the same thing in Australia. I'm wondering in Australia, number one, you know, what is, how friendly is the healthcare environment towards something like psychotherapy? And, and I'm also wondering if the, if, if the average person in Australia understands psychotherapy, um, to be a long-term process because, that, again, that's not what you find here in the United States. I'm going to answer your last question first and work my way back. No, in Australia we are – I said we're about 20 years behind Europe. We do not have a high level of understanding about psychotherapy. We are starting to develop an awareness. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, in an attempt to clarify and bring out what psychotherapy is. Um we have a slightly different system here. Our insurance companies do not cover, well, they might cover you know, three to five sessions of counselling for for a for a client if they are covered. It will not cover longer term like your insurance companies tend to do. We have a slightly different system in that many many years ago, two thousand and six. I write about this in the book. Our government really began to realise we have a mental health problem. And, you know, to their credit, they developed a program where they said, okay, so people are going to get five to ten and potentially eight sessions where they can go to a psychologist and get treatment for this. That worked relatively well in the early stages. People were pouring into, into, into the CBT counselling approach. Now, one of the things that we're finding 10 years on is that they were given maybe, as I said, 18 sessions. Most people are only using five. So the government recently restructured that program to give people a minimum of 10. They're finding that people are not getting the resolution that they wanted through the CBT work. One of the things I'm hoping to do is to talk more about what it will mean to implement longer-term work. Obviously, the government isn't going to fund that because our program here through the government, the Better Access Program, has become unwieldy in terms of finance. The government's really struggling to support it and that's why they wound it back some time ago. So they realise that there's a huge problem. They put something in place that hasn't necessarily worked. The people that they wanted to access that also are not accessing it. Um, and so now they're back to the drawing board. So speaking of governments, do you think that this this way in which psychotherapy is misunderstood, do you think that it's a public health issue and that and that states and governments should pay more attention to it and do do something more about it? 
Yes, yes, I do. Yes, um, and I mentioned that in the book. Uh, One of the things that I'm in the process of doing is speaking to the corrective services because I mentioned this in the book that if we have if we have people in in our corrective services for ten years, they're captive audience. Why are we not doing longer term work with them? Why are we not doing more work around why they found themselves there. So there is a lot of work to do in this area. I think if we can pull psychotherapy out of being an intervention, which is what you see in in the States and and not so much here and certainly but not in, 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 in Europe, if we can pull it out as a standalone for what it really, how it was really developed, we are going to have another option. And I think the difficulty is getting it recognised as as a standalone style of working with clients in long in a longer-term approach. I, I wonder sometimes if part of the reason why psychotherapy is misunderstood is because over time it's been increasingly tied to the medical model. And if you think that we might be better understood if um, – if, if we sort of separated ourselves a bit from medicine and if perhaps we we would be seen more like shaman or as spiritual healers. <laughs> I'm very reluctant to go that road because therein lays the initial problem of, yes, they're kooks and uh, quacks. So we need to be very careful about going that road. We're not a sophisticated society around looking anything at anything deeper than science has to to give us. And but I think one of the things that is happening is that there is the move away from 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 the medical model by the public. And I think one of the reasons that I was encouraged to write the book is I did a lot of work from the professional level and it tried to work at the political level around getting change. And so after maybe a decade plus of that, I decided that it needed to come from the public. The questions were coming from the public. So I felt like then the questions needed to come from the public. So what I feel we need to do is create a groundswell where the public start to say, well, why isn't this psychotherapy in this as an option for me? Why isn't it part of the medical model? Why are we not looking at psychotherapy as, a, as an option so I think that's going to need to come from 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 the public uh, rather than from a spiritual, um, you know, an area that's not really high, highly regarded, like shamanism. You know, speaking of the medical model, I'm wondering, I, I'm wondering what you think about the use of diagnoses, particularly the the diagnostic statistical manual or the ICD. Sometimes clients come in and they think of themselves in terms of a diagnosis, oh, I'm bipolar or or I have depression. And I'm wondering if you think that that kind of language is helpful or or harmful in helping people. I don't know what it is, but people love a tag. It's almost like there's relief once they have a little tag. I think diagnosis is brilliant. I think we need it and I don't think we should move away from it. I think one of the problems with diagnosis is that it has become – a mire. It's dragged the professions down. It ha- we have created these extensive diagnosis around what a client is, what a client does, how a client thinks, and I think we've lost sight of the client. The client becomes a series of descriptions that's in, you know, the DSM five. Uh, 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 and I think that I think that it's helpful in terms of us 
knowing what the approach is. And I mentioned this in the book as well. So, you know, I, I want to know that what the difference is between a schizoid adaptation and a borderline adaptation because I'm going to approach that quite differently. So we do need to know. We need to know that somebody has schizophrenia and that, you know, psychosis is, is a problem. So we need to have a diagnostic tool of some description. The problem with our diagnostic tool is that um, it swamps the client. The client is no longer a person. There are a series of diagnoses, and I think that that in itself is a huge problem. You know, I, I had a supervisor one time uh, describe his recommended use of diagnoses in terms of um, writing things in light pencil. In other words, using them as, as a kind of general frame of reference for understanding a group of symptoms and behaviors, but without really um, putting it in permanent marker, meaning without really treating it as, as a, as a concrete, tangible thing, because, because they're constructs and, and, and not everybody is going to fit in fit the same categories in the same ways. Do you find the same thing? Yes, I do. Your supervisor was uh, far more appropriate than mine. Mine told me when I studied the DSM, I needed to sit on the toilet and not take it seriously. <laughs> so, yes, so I, I agree with that. I, I think it is it is important background noise, but it certainly has got to stop being the way we see people. Yes. You, you know, the story we discussed earlier about the patient with agoraphobia kind of illustrated how a set of symptoms or a condition or a presenting problem can, can really be misunderstood. And I'm wondering of all the people in your book or even, even of all the folks you've worked with, do you think that there's a particular disorder or human condition that is most misunderstood by society right now? Oh, that's a really big question. I, I think this is really simplified, but I think that depression is misunderstood. Depression and, and, and I want to say grief. I mention grief a lot in the book. Um, I think they're two areas where we've started to use them as interchangeable so much that we no longer understand what it really means. And to have depression is very debilitating. To be grieving something, whether it is a recent death or whether it is the loss of a childhood, um, is a very, very, very painful, painful experience. And I think the thing has become a joke. If we look at social media now, I and mean, sometimes I look at some of the things on social media that people are laughing at or making fun of, and I think, my goodness, what must it be like for that person to live like that? So I think that we're not understanding the depth of what that person suffers. And I think that this is being played out in, I write about self-killing, suicide as most people know it. We have unprecedented levels of, of suicide and I, I feel like there's no place for people to go now and so the, the backstop is suicide. So I think there is something very serious happening around how we look at what people are struggling with these days. What would you say depression is? Depression is, for me, a, a the the person's way 
of suppressing and repressing everything which has ever hurt them, has ever been painful or has ever been difficult. It's that simple and in in many ways it's actually just squashing down every single thing that that person has ever lived that has been difficult for them. And I think that that's why a lot of the CBT doesn't work, doesn't work, is that we can't get to that material in a handful of sessions. That's longer-term work where we peel back a layer after layer after layer after layer ad nauseum to find what the client has really suffered, where the client really is, why the client really has depression. Depression cannot be and cannot be cured through a set of strategies. And that takes me to medication. Look, medication is great for a lot of people, but I see a lot of people that have been on and off several medications and, and not had a resolution. And, of course, as I say in the book, if you can take a pill, we are a society of instant gratification. If we can take a pill and things are better, then great, fantastic, we're going to do that. People don't embark on psychotherapy if there's something simpler to do. Mm-hmm. You know, this discussion about about depression and about the way we misunderstand conditions makes me think about the future and it makes me want to ask you if if you could hypothetically uh, make a suggestion or a set of suggestions to training programs who are training our future psychologists and psychotherapists um, or if you could give some advice to future psychotherapists themselves, what would it be? Look, it, it would it would be to get out there and talk about it. I, I think one of the things that we do as a profession is we write acres and acres of material advancing how we can help the client get better, basically. Uh, paper after paper after paper is produced in an attempt to better get a better result for the client, which is great. But I think the thing that's more important is the clients actually know the difference and they know what they can get and how that will work. I think the more we do that, the more we're going to draw the clients into the longer-term work, the clients that need it, draw them into the work and get them some sort of resolution. I, I, I think we also need to find a way into the schools. Um, I, I read uh, an interesting comment on on um, one of my social media things last night was a blog where a guy writes in his journal every day and and he says oh and I don't write much about emotions because you know we don't you know we don't really really want to pay much attention to those and this is a very prominent um international speaker and I thought it's the reverse that we need we need to go into the schools into the primary schools and a part of the curriculum is that the kids all sit around and talk about what's going on for them I think that that's where we need to start so it sounds like you you believe we need to we need to teach people early to be what I think some would call emotionally intelligent. That's exactly exactly what I'm saying. Yes. So, what suggestions do you have for someone who's listening to this interview and maybe has been toying with the idea for a long time of going into psychotherapy, but has always been kind of nervous about it or unsure about whether to do it, and maybe even unsure about how to find good treatment, find the right treatment, what what's what first step should that person take to find good treatment? Well, perhaps what they could do is go to my website and read 
how to find a psychotherapist. And, and by that, I mean what they want to start doing is asking the appropriate questions um, because because if somebody advertises as a psychotherapist, they are potentially a psychotherapist, but that person, the, the client still doesn't know if if they're going to get that sort of treatment. Uh, they could also be walking into something that is more CBT. So what they need to know is that the client, that the that the professional is trained in psychotherapy, specific that they have done their own work. I think that is probably for me the single most important component is that the is that the psychotherapist has taken all their own skeletons out of the closet and spread them all over the place and and, and looked at them mm. um, and that they are in some sort of supervision of, of, of their work so that they can deal with the difficulties that arise around the transference and the counter-transference because that can be exhausting. So, so the client now becomes educated around what a psychotherapist is and can interview. So the other thing I would encourage people to do is talk to two, three, four, five professionals and find out how they work. I think one of the things that we do is we tr we trust, the clients trust us. So a client of mine read my book recently and she came in and she said, I've never seen your qualifications. I said, no, you haven't. I don't put them all over the wall. So I rummaged through the office drawer and there they were. So people are very trusting. They come trusting that what we say we are, we are. And I think we need to encourage the public to ask more questions. And, and since, you've, since you've done the work of, of compiling a list of questions for people, can you tell us what your website is? Yes, it's my name. It's www.joefrasca.com. Well, I, I think everybody should check that out. And, Joe, this really has been a very enlightening and I think a very timely conversation. Before we go, can you tell us what you're working on now? Well, interestingly, I sent my book out to many publishers. One publisher, one very prominent academic publisher came back to me and said, we don't publish for the general public, but we love your book. However, what we would like you to do is write about the effect of an animal in the room for academia. So I'm in the process of collaborating with people around uh, around the world to, to write a book. That is very slow at the moment because I've been concentrating on, on this book. It's kind of taken off and I need to give it the give it the energy that it requires. But that's my next project and I'm also blogging more as well in the hope of that blog bumping into a person who's in the middle of the night feeling depressed and trolling the internet and going, oh, right, so this is what psychotherapy is. So they're probably my two-pronged approach at the moment. <laughs> and your blog is also at uh, joefrasca.com? Yes, yes it is. Well, those sound like exciting projects. Will you let us know when the next book comes out? Absolutely, I will. Thank you. That sounds exciting. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck on the book tour. Thank you very much. All right, take care. That was my interview with Joe Frasca, author of the book Delving Deeper Understanding Diverse Approaches While Exploring Psychotherapy. This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology in New York. I really welcome your feedback, so please go to my website, www.eugenioduartephd.com, and click on blog and podcast to find this episode and leave me a comment. Have a great week.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.